Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our summer sermon series, Love Must Be Sincere. In this passage, we continue to see what our remodel will look like. But what evils are we supposed to hate? The external? The internal? And when we say, cling to what we love, we know that our sinful nature makes that a struggle. So what are we supposed to do? You're listening to Hate What is Evil, Cling to What is Good by Reverend Peter Yonker. We're continuing our sermon series, our summer sermon series on Romans 12, verse 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21. And um, all summer long, we're going to be looking at this passage. We're going to be letting this passage form us. Uh, And the, the image that I'd like you to think of is that this passage is going to renovate us, okay? It's a renovation project, only it's not our kitchens that are getting renovated or our basements. It's our hearts, it's our souls, it's our lives. And the Holy Spirit is leading this renovation project, and we're cooperating. And little by little, the Holy Spirit is going to change us. And this, this, this passage that you hear, even though it's in the imperative, even though when we read it, it'll sound like this renovation project is up to you, It's really the Holy Spirit who's doing the work, and and this passage is a picture of who we will be, of who the Spirit will make us to be in Jesus Christ. So last week, we focused on the part of the passage, which is at the very beginning, which is love must be sincere, so sincere love. And now we're going to take the very next phrase, which is hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, you remember that part of our goal is to memorize this passage, and you're still laughing about that. <laughs> and I should have said this last week, but I will say to you, brothers and sisters, if you memorize just one verse per week, one little verse per week, by the end of the summer, you will have this entire passage memorized. And first one is, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So there, you're done already. <laughs> Next week, work on verse two. You can do this. And we're going to recite it together as a way to help us uh, memorize it. I'm not going to read it for you. We're going to recite it together. So let us say together, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above ourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who curse you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be prepared to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not seek revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. 
for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to, if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So last week, um, I started the sermon with the question, as you look at the Christian church and as you look at what the church is, what is the, what is the central moral characteristic of the Christian church? When people look at the church and they think of us, what should they think of? And the answer that we get from this passage and the answer that we get from the rest of Scripture is love. When people think of the church, when they walk into this place, when they experience this place, they should experience agape love, the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Love is at the center of who we are. And we also acknowledged that um, if we say that, if love is at the center, that at least has the risk of sounding a little squishy, right? Like sentiment, like just sentimentalism that might lead to some kind of relativism, like love, we just love everyone, you do you and I'll do me and we'll just love each other and everybody be and, and, and just, you know, sort of hippie-like. Any notion that this love is squishy and sentimental vanishes in the second phrase of this passage. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. This is not sentimental, squishy love. This is love with purpose and direction. This is love with foundation. This is love that has discipline. This is the love that says yes to some things and no to other things. This is a love that hates what is evil and clings to what is good. So it pushes you into the middle of a struggle, into the middle of a battle. To love like this is to enter into a struggle between good and evil and between darkness and light, just like Jesus. Right? When Jesus loved, his love was not just sort of squishy. It entered into a struggle in the midst of Palestine. He had a love that was firm and purposed and bounded and directed. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, when I say those words to you, when you heard them earlier, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. What are the first things that come to your mind? When I say hate what is evil, what are the evils that you imagine hating or turning yourself against? If your mind works like mine, and this is what happened in my head, when I read this passage and said, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, the first thing I thought of were the great evils of this world that people do out there that make a mess of things. So, racism, right? I hate it when people treat people badly because of the race. I hate racism. That's an evil that I hate. Or when people deliberately lie out there for personal advantage and power. I hate it. I hate it when powerful people lie. Or maybe you thought of sexual sin. I hate it when people are promiscuous and distort God's will for sex. That's what you think out. The, when you think hate what is evil, you think of those great sins out there. But now, in our passage... When Paul says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good, what evils does he name? What is the theater of the battle that he names for this struggle of evil against good? 
Does Paul enumerate the sins of the pagans? Does he point out all the evils of the empire, the disgusting and terrible things that are being done out there by the pagans, and they are many, and they were vile? Is that where he starts? No. In our passage in Paul, the theater of this struggle between good and evil is in us. It's in our own hearts. The line between good and evil is fought in our own hearts. In our attitudes, in our actions, do not be lacking in zeal. Be joyful. Be patient. Don't be conceited. Don't be proud. Those are attitudes of our heart. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Those are actions of our hands. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The theater of that struggle begins in our own hearts. The line between good and evil is drawn in our own hearts. That's where this fight begins. When I think about that, I realize that most of our public discourse these days, and I mean from all sides, most of our public discourse does not train us to fight the battle in here. Most of our public discourse teaches us to draw the line out there and fight with others. Whether it's TV, social media, even our own conversations, and I am guilty of this too, even in the way that I talk about problems in this world, we train each other in a kind of a liturgy. We identify a problem in the world. We talk about why it's so terrible, and then we identify who's responsible for this problem, right? And then we set ourselves against this problem and those people over there who are perpetuating this. We draw a line between them and us, and that's where the battle engages. Think of it as a kind of liturgy that we are trained in by media, that we are trained in by our own conversations. Call it a liturgy of self-righteousness or a liturgy of condemnation. It has three steps. That's the problem. That's why it's so terrible. And those are the people who are responsible for it. We like this liturgy. It's fun to participate in this liturgy. It's fun to get into conversation with a bunch of people who feel the same way we do and practice this liturgy. Because it's self-justifying, right? We get a little buzz, a little serotonin rush of anger. It makes us feel righteous. This is not the liturgy taught by Scripture when it comes to to hating what is evil and loving what is good. It's not the liturgy specifically taught by the book of Romans. In fact, you can argue, and I don't even think it's disputable, frankly, the whole book of Romans is written to break that church, the Roman church, out of the liturgy of self-righteousness. From start to finish, Romans is trying to teach you a different liturgy. Chapters 1 to 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? We're all broken. Jews, Gentiles, you guys think you have the law, that you're righteous, you're not. You're no better than those Gentiles. All of us are sinful. All of us are busted. All of us are a mess. Chapters 3 through 11, we're saved by the patient and lovely grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not anything you do, it's all Jesus saving you, lifting you up. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapters 12 and 13, now we finally get to our part in the battle. And where does he start? As we just saw, 
in the theater of our own hearts. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Finally, chapters 14 and 16, he starts looking at other people. That's the final part of the liturgy. Because you do have to look at other sins out there in the world. You do have to confront these things. But by the time, if you follow the first three steps of the liturgy, by the time you get out there to confront these other sins, you're so aware of your own sin and the grace that saved you and how hard it is to change yourself that you meet these sins with compassion, patience, and all the fruit of the Spirit. You read chapters 14 and 15 of Romans, where you see that Paul finally talks about looking at others, look at the spirit of those chapters. It's all about, don't be too hasty to judge. Be compassionate. Are we as Christians called to confront the sins of others out there in the world? Absolutely. But if our battle against good and evil starts out there, if we get drawn into this litany of this liturgy of self-righteousness, as that becomes our MO day after day after day, we are not doing what Scripture teaches, and we are causing great damage. So that's the first thing I want to say about hate what is evil, cling to what is good. I want to be clear about where it starts. Doesn't mean we don't fight those evils. This is where it starts. The second thing I want to say is how you do it. And it has everything to do with what you love. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Those two words, hate and cling, are really interesting words. They're very strong. Hate is, uh, is like, be, like viscerally repulsed by something. If you hate what is evil, you, you, you are, it just disgusts you, okay? The word cling, on the other hand, is like a marriage word. It's got a whiff of romance to it. In the King James Version, for those of you who still remember it, it says, cleave to what is good. Do you remember how marriage is associated with that word cleave also in the King James Version in Genesis 2? Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. So does that notion of marriage, utter commitment, love and commitment, cleave to the good. How do you change your heart? What is, the, what is it, where is it that you become changed? It is when, it, it all depends on what you cleave to. You are what you love. You are what you commit yourself with love and action. Here's a story that I may have told before, but I think it illustrates this really well, how our loves are the thing that shape us. When I was a kid, uh, I took a lot of piano lessons, a lot of piano lessons. And my parents supported this and pushed this, and they supported that with rules, good rules. They said to me, Honey, we want you to take piano lessons because it's good for a person to be musical. It makes you a well-rounded person. We want you to learn to play the piano. And I, I said, yeah, that's good. Okay, I'll do that. And we want you uh, to practice a half hour a day. That's how you learn. I said, yeah, I think that sounds right. I should practice a half hour a day. And then I would sit down at the piano and try to practice a half hour a day, and it was the longest half hour of my entire life. I would play for what seemed like a long, long time. So my mom would always set this. There was a kitchen timer on the stove, an old clicker, and she'd set it to half hour. And I'd play for a long time, and I'd go back and look at the timer to see how far it was, and I said, 15 minutes, I can't be right. And then I'd go play some more, and I'd have to go back in. I said, oh my goodness. And I confess to you that once in a while, if my mother was not in the kitchen, I think, you, I think you know the rest. 
Do you think I play the piano now? No. Why don't I play the piano even though I, 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 I believed in the rules, right? I believed that I should learn. I, I believed that half hour a day was the right thing, but I couldn't do it. Why? Because I didn't love the piano. It had no music for me. I just, I just didn't love it. My daughter, by contrast, started her violin and took to it like a duck to water. She, from the very beginning, loved her violin. And when she was in high school, she would practice for two hours straight and we had to tell her to stop. <laughs> What's the difference? It's love. It's what you love. When you love something, when you love the good, when you cling to it, you don't have to worry about the rules. You'll just be drawn to it. And now you see, you hear me say that, and you say, oh, yeah, that's what I want. I want a heart like that. I want a heart that just cleaves, clings to the good, that just wants it. So I don't even have to think about it. But Peter, and I'm right there with you on this, my heart doesn't cleave to everything good. It doesn't. I'm constantly fighting all kinds of, I don't hate the evil. Sometimes I want to cleave to the evil. Why is that? I want to change my heart. How do I do this? Well, the shorter answer is, you don't do anything. This is Romans as well, Romans 7, okay? Romans 7 is essentially Paul's version of my piano lesson story, all right? In Romans 7, Paul says, I know, that, I, I know the good, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I want to do it, but I can't do it. I can't bring myself to do it. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And then he gives his own answer. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't create your new heart. But by his grace, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is sent into your heart and is starting to teach you to love the right things. Little by little, bit by bit, your heart is being taught to cling to what is good. And it's our job to cooperate. I'm reminded of a story that Fred Craddock tells. Fred Craddock a great Southern preacher, teacher of preachers, now deceased, talked about what it was like for him as a child to go to church. I think he must have been nine. He didn't say how old he was, but he said, it was the longest hour of my life. It was so boring when I was a kid. The minister just droned on and on and on and on. And I'd poke my brothers and I'd write on little pieces of paper and I'd beg my mom for more pe peppermints. I just couldn't wait for it to be done. But he kept going to church. He kept participating in the things of God with the people of God and doing the things. And then one day he suddenly realized that something had changed. It was maybe five years later. He's still young, maybe 15. And he's in church and he said, there was a young couple in front of me who were obviously in love because they were snuggling up to each other the whole church, the whole church service and they were nuzzling each other. They were even like, kissing each other in the middle of the church, I wanted to hit them over the head with a hymnal in the name of Jesus. <laughs> because they were being absolutely disrespectful in the most important hour of my week. Something had changed. What happened? What changed? It's not like he did something amazing. All he did was low-grade cooperation. The Spirit changed him. The Spirit was there in his heart. Tap, tap, tapping away. Not with a sledgehammer, but maybe with a ball-peen hammer, slowly working you into shape. 
We are not doing this alone. This is not our making. This heart, your heart, this church, this kingdom. Because God help us if the future of my heart, the future of this church, the future of this kingdom depends on me. If the future of the kingdom depends on my or your ability to discern what is righteous and your will to do what is righteous, God help us. And he has. He has helped us. He sent his one and only son to die for us, to give us a new heart, and to carry us. Amen. Amen. Lord, I thank you for your word and your grace and the spirit that's working in our heart. Lord, I pray that you give us the grace to cooperate with your spirit. Sometimes it feels like our own hearts work in the opposite direction. Lord, I pray that this summer you will teach us to cooperate. And Lord, again, I lift up um, Cindy and Tim and Brad. Um, even as I'm preaching this sermon, my heart is leaning towards them. Please heal Cindy, and we pray that um, she may be able to come back to full health and back to this place. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.